Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather in this place today and think on your truth, rejoice in your name, be grateful for the salvation that you have given us in Jesus Christ, be grateful for the people that you have put in our midst for a season, be thankful that we're a part of a family and that you use all the different members of the body to build it up. And we thank you, God, for the faithfulness of so many in this church over so many years. And uh, we thank you, God, that we can be here in South Buffalo and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Please use us to spread your glory in this neighborhood and throughout western New York. And we do pray, God, for Patrick and Olivia as they prepare to leave, uh, that you would strengthen them and give them everything that they need and just show them, God, that you are with them every step of the way. It does not mean that things will be easy, uh, but it does mean that you are everything with them, providing for them, encouraging them, reminding them that their trust is in you, not in themselves. And so, Lord, please bless them as they go. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 5. It's a well-known story, as several of them in Daniel are. This particular one is about the handwriting on the wall. And I think we all have probably heard that phrase used before at some point or another, have we not? And it's usually when the outcome is going to be a bad one. Things aren't going to go well. That's when the handwriting is on the wall. The moment comes when you realize that you are not going to get the job. Or maybe that you're going to lose the job. The relationship isn't going to work out. When you don't have the finances uh, that you had hoped you would have when you wanted to take that trip. Or that your health, it wasn't going to get better. We've all seen the proverbial handwriting in some situation or another. And that phrase comes from the story in front of us today in Daniel chapter 5. Handwriting appears on the wall in front of a wicked king during a lavish feast. And nobody is able to interpret what it means except Daniel. And we have heard that before, haven't we, as we have read through this book. It seems that nobody is able to understand anything except Daniel because God has given him wisdom. He's able to understand secrets that others are not able to. He's God's chosen vessel to remind all the people that the Lord is the one who is in control in spite of the way things look. And this king, he learns that truth the hard way when he sees the handwriting that's on the wall. And chapter 5 begins with a new character in the story. Look there with me in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Well, we might ask, who is King Belshazzar and, and what has he done with Nebuchadnezzar? 
We've had Nebuchadnezzar up to this point. He's been a very prominent character in Daniel. As a matter of fact, we could say that Nebuchadnezzar has been just as prominent as Daniel himself. But all of a sudden, he has disappeared from the pages of Scripture and is replaced by this man named Belshazzar. And until the 1850s, the only evidence that existed about this particular king was found right here in the pages of Daniel. Lots of evidence existed about all the different kings of Babylon, the men who followed Nebuchadnezzar to the throne, but none of the lists that existed included this particular name. In fact, it was well documented that a man named Nabonidus, that he was the king when, Nebu when Babylon fell to the Persians. But Daniel tells us here that it was Belshazzar. And so because he wasn't mentioned anywhere else, scholars and historians were in agreement that whoever wrote this book must have made up this name. Until an archaeologist started excavating a section of Babylon in 1853, and there he found the name Belshazzar engraved upon the columns. More evidence was then found about who he was, and now it is well documented that he was the son of Nabonidus, who reigned in the place of his father for the last decade or so while Nabonidus went to live in a different city. And I guess the reason why I've spent a couple of minutes talking about this particular man and why it was important that his name was found, it's not so that you will get the answer correct on your Babylonian history exam, but it is to see that there is truth in God's Word. And just to have more reason to believe what it says, in spite of what other people might say on the outside, there will be times when some will say that, you know, this might prove that Scripture is not true, or this might prove that. I just want you to see just another reason why when all the evidence is finally turned in, that Scripture will stand. It is true. And what we read here is truth, in spite of what some people may say. We do not have to be afraid that the bones of Jesus are going to be discovered. We don't need to sit there worrying about what next discovery is going to come out so that all that we hold true will fall to a heap of ruin. My whole faith will come crashing down when they discover this or that. No, quite to the contrary. They're only going to discover what Scripture says is true. And so many have tried to explain away what the Bible says, and every one of them will be proven false, either now or in the end. And this is just another example of that with a man named Belshazzar. And we're not told what the occasion was here, but the king threw a great feast for all of his dignitaries. It says for his thousands. So all the governors and all the people were coming in to celebrate with King Belshazzar. And his wives were all there, and his harem of women was there, and the wine was flowing. So everybody was having a great time, and they were celebrating the gods of Babylon. We're told the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And it seems that the wine was flowing just a little bit too much, and that the king may have wanted to demonstrate the power of his gods over the God that they had already conquered some 60 or 70 years before. And so he brought in all of the vessels 
that had come from the temple in Jerusalem, out of the house of God in Jerusalem, we're told. And these vessels had been sitting in Babylon for all of this time, but Belshazzar decided that it was time for them to come out and be used by his dinner guests in an act of idolatry and pride. But at that moment, verse 5, we see the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And you have to like the description that the text gives of of Belshazzar's response to this. Verse 6 says, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. He's terrified. And at this point, we're not told what the writing on the wall said, just that the king wanted to know what it meant. He knew that this was an important message that had been sent to him. And he just wanted to understand what the text says. And so we know what he did, did the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar always did. They call all the court magicians together to come and determine what the writing says. He says, if anybody is able to tell me what it means, I will give you third place in the kingdom. I will put on you all sorts of beautiful clothes and all sorts of jewelry. I will lavish you if you can tell me what it says. But at this point, we know that none of his court magicians are able to do any good. They never are able to do any good. And so there he is sitting, wondering, what does this message, the hand of God, the handwriting on the wall, what is they saying to me? But at this point, thankfully, a queen comes in, somebody who wasn't already at the feast, somebody who knows the past, She remembers that there is somebody that has been long forgotten, a man named Daniel, who she describes as having an excellent spirit. He has knowledge. He has understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. This is the man, Belshazzar, that you need for this particular job. He's just been forgotten all of this time. And from what we know about the history of the kings of Babylon, about 30 years have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. A lot of time for Daniel to be set aside. What's he done all these years? What's he been up to? Where's he been? It seems that Daniel is something of an exile within the exile, forgotten by men, but not forgotten by God. And all these years later, he is called before the king, just like old times. And when he comes and presents himself and stands before Belshazzar, he is not held in high esteem. He is not spoken to with great dignity by this man who never has heard of him before. John Calvin says that Belshazzar speaks to Daniel as though he were a prisoner. He refers to him as one of the exiles of Judah. Hey, you're one of the guys that we captured and brought here all those years ago. You're not one of us. You're something a little bit lesser than us. And I have only heard secondhand that you're able to do the things that are said of you. So there's not the sense that the king 
holds him very highly or even believes that he is able to do the things that the queen has said that he is. He wants Daniel to know his place as he stands before him, to put him in his proper place. But Belshazzar makes the same promise to Daniel that he made to all of his court flunkies. Fine clothes, jewelry, third in the kingdom, if only Daniel can solve the riddle. But what we see is that he is not motivated by the king's trinkets. He's brought out of retirement for this one last act of knowledge, a time when some men might have been tempted to bask in the glory of the moment. Maybe tell the king something good that he wanted to hear. Thankful to be back in front of the king and useful again, and maybe wanting to stick around to do the job some more. But that's not what Daniel does. So let's read together what he says in verses 17 to 28. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel says, in summary to the king, when he tells him, if you tell me what all of this means, I will give you great honor in my kingdom, and I will give you lots of beautiful clothes. Daniel says to him, I don't want your gifts. They will not amount to much tomorrow anyway. Daniel knows that. Give them to somebody else. I am not interested. But he tells him what the events were that we know are in chapter 4. 
He reminds him of the time when Nebuchadnezzar, his heart was lifted up against the God of heaven. And then God sent him out into the field to live as a beast, to have dew on his back, and to munch grass in the field with the wild donkeys. He says, God humbled that man. And then he praised the God of heaven. And a remarkable statement he makes here, he says to Belshazzar, you actually knew all of that. You knew that that took place. You knew that the God of heaven humbled this great and mighty king, who, by the way, is a lot better than you were, a lot mightier, a lot greater. He had far more power than you have, and God humbled him. You should have learned from his example, but you have not. And because of that, God has sent the handwriting on the wall to tell you of the judgment that is swiftly coming for you. And he gives him, there's an ironic way that Daniel says all of this about how Belshazzar and all the people there are, are worshiping these false gods of gold and wood and stone. And because they're worshiping those gods, they choose to bring in the vessels from the house of God, which were made of gold. And so Daniel says to him, you're able to hold in your hand the metal that you are worshiping. It cannot do anything of its own. It doesn't get up and walk around. It has no power. You lift it up, and you carry it around, and you drink out of it. That God does not do anything for himself, the one that you hold. But, he says, the God who holds your breath in his hand, you don't honor. Something strange about that, isn't it? He's carrying these little gods around, in a sense, and worshiping them because of what they're made out of. But you are not giving honor or praise to the God who holds your breath and has all of your ways and all of your days in his hand. He's going to show you who is powerful and strong, and it is not your gods whom you hold. It's the one who holds you. And he's about to find out. And Daniel says to him what the meaning of the handwriting on the wall is. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. The days of your kingdom, they're numbered and they have all been spent. They're gone. You've been put into the scales yourself and you have been found too light. If you know anything about scales, you understand what he's saying. There is something that is supposed to tell you how heavy something is supposed to be. The other one comes in, it's not light enough to balance the scales. Belshazzar, you do not have enough weight, not enough substance to you. You have been found wanting. And because of that, your kingdom is divided and taken from your hands. And no words of response are recorded from the king about the interpretation that Daniel gives. But it is clear from what happens that he believes what Daniel has said is true because he puts upon him the necklace and the fine jewelry and says that he is third in the kingdom. But that night, verse 30 says, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. The fall of Babylon is recorded in some just historical records that are out there that have been made by the Greeks. And both of them say that there was a great feast that was taking place in the city on the night when the Persians came in to attack. That was the reason 
that they chose to come in on that night to invade because there was some sort of holiday. Babylon was known for having unconquerable walls. I read how thick it was. I remember how thick the walls were. They were ridiculous, ridiculously thick. Nobody would think they could ever penetrate those walls. There was supposed to have been 20 years of food stored up inside the city for all the people to eat. So it wasn't as if they could come in and lay siege to the city and keep out all the food and then conquer it because all the people are starving. That's not going to happen. Water flowed underneath the walls of the city. The river Euphrates came underneath the wall. So they had all the water that they needed. But the Persians had a plan. And so what they had decided to do was to go upstream a ways, they're on the Euphrates River, and divert some of the water into a marshy area. And he told his soldiers, you stay there at the Euphrates, close to the wall, and when it gets low enough, you will be able to go underneath. And that's exactly what they did. So they took some of the water out of the Euphrates, water comes down to about thigh height, they walk in underneath the walls of the city, they attack that very night, and they kill King Belshazzar. That's what the Greek sources tell us what happened. And from a peasant's perspective, the next day, they would have seen and said how clever that those Persians were. But the people of God who would have read this story, understanding who is in control. They would have known that the Lord gave the kingdom, from, taken it from this prideful and wicked man and given it into the hand of the Persians. And I have said something like this each week that we've been together here in the book of Daniel. In spite of the way things look out there in the world, God wants us to understand that He is the one who is in control. And so it looks to us like things are chaotic. It looks to us like things are spinning out of control. It looks, it looks in a way like nobody is in control. Well, it would have looked that way to all of these people who lived as God's people in Babylon some 2,500 years ago. And God was telling them then, do not be afraid. I, the Lord, rule in heaven. You don't have anything to worry about. I will take care of you. They needed to hear that then, and we, needed to hear that, and we need to hear that today. He was telling them that their time there in that place would be used in his plan to make them more godly and bring their hearts to the tune of worship than apparently would have happened if they had gone on living as usual back there in Jerusalem. God was seeking their ultimate good by bringing about what looked to be evil upon them. So we need to understand, in spite of what might be happening in our world, or what you see on your news feed, that God is good, and He is sovereign. We always need to be reminded of this. It seems that the default setting, if I was a machine, the default setting that every time I wake up in the morning is to probably be a little bit anxious or a little bit concerned or to think that I have to take control of everything myself. And God wants to remind me, I am in control. 
You do not have to be afraid because of how strong you are or how able you are or how smart you are. I'm telling you to not be afraid because of how strong and wise and good I am. God wants to remind me that He is my Father and He is in control in spite of what it looks like in my world. I don't need to be afraid and neither do you. He wants us to be reminded that we can live as holy people, as I read here from 1 Peter 2 a little while ago. Live as the holy people that he's called us to be, no matter where we are. No matter what it looks like is going on, you know, from your government, local or national, what's going on in the world. Live as the people of God. Be holy. Do what you've been called to do. Daniel, for the first 30 years of his time in Babylon, was well used by the king. Last 30 years, seems that he's been well forgotten by the king. So no matter who you're remembered by or how useful that you think you are, God is simply calling you to faithfulness and trusting that he will guide us safely home, as we sang just a little while ago. We need truth. We need our feet firmly grounded in truth, not in all sorts of wild emotions or feelings. And Daniel, this book right here, tells us what we need to hear. That God still walks with His people wherever and whenever they are. And He gives them exactly what they need, no matter what it looks like. The prophet Jeremiah was Daniel's contemporary So Daniel, back when Nebuchadnezzar came in and pillaged the city, Daniel was carried off. He was taken away to Babylon with all sorts of other people. But the prophet Jeremiah was left behind. And so he was there looking at all the destruction there in the city, greatly upset over what he saw there in Jerusalem. And he was wondering, what is the Lord up to? Everything is dashed. All of our hopes are gone. And then we're told in Jeremiah chapter 29, For thus says the Lord, this is what he told to Jeremiah, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord, plans for your good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What hope to hear that I'm doing something good by sending you away into this other kingdom. I know it doesn't look like that, but it is. And there's going to come a day when you're going to repent. You're going to call on me from the heart. You're going to worship me. I'm doing that work in you. That's a good work. You need it because that's not what you were doing. You weren't calling on me. You weren't worshiping me. You were doing everything that you wanted to do. So I sent you away. But you are my people, and I won't forget about you. So you need to know that I know the plans that I've got for you, and they're good, and they're not for evil. And God's people today need to be reminded of that same promise, do we not? Because we don't know. We're not able to make sense of all the stuff that's going on. you got people out there that are telling you that they can make sense of it all. I don't listen to them. 
I'm okay with there being some things that I don't understand, but I know who my God is. He doesn't tell me everything. He tells me stuff like this. Don't be afraid. I'm doing you good. Trust me. Keep following. That's what he tells us. And he will prove himself faithful in the end. And God's people don't have to have all of the answers. We have our God. And he's teaching us when we can't see very well with our eyes, that if we follow his voice, he's up there. Follow the sound of my voice, he says. I'm here. Keep following. And that's what God's people do until he brings us home. But we want to be able to see everything, don't we? We want to go to people who can tell us all the ins and all the outs and tell you all the details of what Scripture's telling us. If you just look at this and look at that, that's what it's telling you, only to find yourself disappointed when those people are proven wrong. God's Word leaves some things vague so that we walk by faith and not by sight. What about that? It's just true. We don't like that. Well, we got a lot to learn. And God will teach us to simply follow what he says, even if it seems vague. He wants us to learn his character, what he is like. We are children who don't know everything, and we're being taught that he does. And that's what the people here in Daniel were learning as well. They'd been carried into Babylon. They couldn't see everything. They just needed to know they have a God who can see everything, and that everything he is doing is for their good. And so my first application from this passage is that God's people can persevere in exile because God is doing them good, and he's there with them. Persevere. Keep running the race. Keep fighting the fight. Keep moving forward. You have God with you. What else do you need? But even more direct from this passage is the truth that Belshazzar and his feasting fools are a picture of mankind on the brink of judgment. That's what they are. So this story is a kind of parable of mankind who is separated from the saving grace of God, a drunken and prideful party giving praise to all sorts of false gods without acknowledging the God who gives them breath. Is that not a picture of the world that we live in? And what we're being told here is that the handwriting is on the wall and judgment is coming maybe much more swiftly than anybody realizes. And who will tell these lost sinners of the great things that God has done for them? Who's going to remind them about the powerful works of his mercy? And so Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, was, had experienced God's mercy back when he was humbled. And Daniel says to Belshazzar that you knew these things, and yet you didn't repent. These works were known by you. They should have caused you to repent and worship the God of heaven, but that didn't happen. Why? 
This isn't too far from what we read back in Romans chapter 1 a few weeks ago, that the unbelieving world suppresses the truth and worships false gods and does evil and encourages other people to do the same. And judgment is knocking at the door. And there is a residue in the memory of the people here. I would even say in western New York. It's, it's a distant memory. It's just a little bit of residue that's left. And their memories, they're somewhere. Somebody knows in families that God has done something back way long ago. But it's been forgotten. It's been lost. Kind of like Daniel was. And when Daniel appears here, he is not upset at the judgment that's about to come upon Belshazzar, but he's not rejoicing either. He simply is bold enough to tell him of the righteous judgment of God that will overtake him soon enough. It's the same kind of thing that we would read in the old prophets. Judgment is coming. Repent. It's the same kind of message that John the Baptist preached before Jesus came. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it is the same message that Jesus himself preached. Repent. Somebody has to be a faithful witness to a rebellious and sinful world. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? We have prayed for revival in our homes, with our own families. We have prayed for revival in our community. And by revival, I do not mean a planned and scheduled work of God. I don't think that's a revival at all. That's just a meeting. What I mean by revival is a work of the Spirit of God that brings men to a place of true repentance for their sins and love for Jesus Christ, their Savior. It's a heart change toward God that produces life change. There will be fruit that accords with the heart. That's when you know that revival has taken place. And we have prayed for that now for, I would say, three years. About three years we've been praying for that. And at some point, a man or a woman who, who knows the Lord has to stand before a sinner and proclaim their sinfulness, like we see here in Daniel but also proclaim to them the mercy of God towards sinners in Jesus Christ, like we see in the book of Acts. And so we've prayed for that to happen, have we not? We will pray for that to happen today in our, in our business meeting. We will pray for that to happen tonight at our prayer gathering. At some point, somebody's got to speak. Somebody's got to say something to someone and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will they not how will they believe if they don't hear? Someone must preach. Good feet have to go in front of them, traveling on the hills to bring the mercy of God to them. Somebody has to do it. We need both prayer and speech. And so I'm asking you today, is there somebody in your family, somebody that you know, that you love, and may very well be the kind of person that is the best person that you know? 
They're good in all the things that they do. They work hard. They have integrity. But they don't know Jesus Christ. Who's going to speak to them? Who's going to say that God has shown them love by sending His Son into the world? They're still carrying their own sin. And they need to be told about a Savior who has carried it in their place. The handwriting is on the wall. And judgment is coming for everyone. The cross proves that. God will judge every sin. And every person in this room and every person in this community outside of these walls will either have one of two things happen when they stand before the Lord. They will either be carrying their own sin themselves and they will answer for it. And hell comes with it. Or they will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and bow before God for His grace and His mercy because Jesus has carried their sin for them. They need to be told. And let me just say, I know how uncomfortable it is. You love this person. You don't want that awkward moment, right? I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself, like, I really want to steer the conversation. But boy, I just can't do it. And we need to have it in our, like, there's just love that will compel us. When we begin to see every soul as having an eternal home, they will stand before God. Who's going to speak? The handwriting is there right now. Judgment is upon them. You love them. And the most loving thing you could possibly do for that person is to tell them of their sin and tell them of their sin bearer. Can you see that? We need to have some awkward moments. All of us. We need to be made uncomfortable. We need to have a moment when we're standing before somebody and all we have is, God help me. God help me. Make me strong. Make me bold. Give me words. Help me to just tell them about Jesus. I don't need to have everything perfectly planned and laid out. You know, you've seen Ray Comfort on TV and how good he is, you know, at giving evangelism stuff to people. Man, you love that person. You love Jesus Christ. Make it known. That's it. Tell them about their Savior. And so will you ask God to help you boldly speak into somebody's life, maybe this week, maybe today, somebody that you care about, to tell them about God's kindness towards sinners. And we also need to understand, this is just a moment of praise that we can give back to God in a moment like this when we're being told about the sinfulness of others, that apart from God's grace, every person here is a Belshazzar. Everybody here. A hardened, idolatrous, and prideful sinner worthy of God's condemnation, but somebody, somebody somewhere, it could have been the radio, I don't know. I don't know everybody's story here, but somebody told you the good news of Jesus Christ, and at some point the light shone through into your heart and softened you, and you said, what a beautiful thing. And you may have heard it a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand times before, but in that moment, it was different. It was personal, 
and God sent it directly to you. And maybe, just maybe, because you love that particular person, whoever you're thinking about, maybe because you love them and they know that, that they would receive that message from you far differently than they would receive from somebody else. Speak. Speak. Will you tell them the handwriting is on the wall? And will you tell them about the cross of Jesus Christ? He still saves sinners through the foolishness of the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I think we all need a reminder of the kindness that you have given to sinners. We're even apt to forget about the mighty works of power in our own lives and start treating those like common things. So remind us this morning, God, of the great gospel, your wonderful mercy. You are not obligated to do anything for our sin. But out of the overflow of your wonderful heart, you sent your Son so that you could have a people, a treasured possession, a holy nation. We might not feel holy right now, but you have made us so in Jesus Christ. And we need to thank you and praise you. And may God, through this church, this little weak church, we are truly jars of clay, but we have your strength inside of us. And may you do mighty, mighty works of power through the people here as we proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May you call more into the light through us. God, have mercy on our friends, our families, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our co-workers, whoever it is that's on the mind of the people here. God, show your power to change hardened hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Because Jesus is powerful, we ask it in his name. Amen.